If a leader said that today, our reaction would be, that's not a particularly emotionally intelligent leader. This is chapter, verse, and season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. Join us each week as two Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the revised Common Lectionary. It's a different voice welcoming you to the show this week, but hopefully a familiar one. I'm Helena Martin, executive producer and original host of the podcast. I've been out on leave for a few months, and now I'm back. I'm so grateful to Natalie Owens-Pike for sitting in for me, as well as to everyone else on the team. They all took on a bunch of extra work to fill in the gaps and to continue to bring you new episodes every week while I was out, and I thank them all. This episode, we have Joel Baden, professor of Hebrew Bible and director of the Center for Continuing Education, and Sarah Drummond, founding dean of Andover Newton Seminary at Yale. They're discussing Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, which is appointed for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost in year A. The text is read for you by Natalie Owens-Pike. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do for this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What strikes me first about this passage is that the expression water from a rock is one that I use in ordinary conversation on a daily basis whenever I feel like somebody's asking me to give them something I don't have. Which evidently happens to you on a daily basis. I'm an educational administrator, Joel. (laughs) Of course, it happens to me on a daily basis. As an administrator, I am a symbol of the resources that people wish they had to work with. And sometimes I have them. Often I do not. And I suffer from the projection of Sarah must have it. Sarah must know it. One of my great pet peeves is when people ask me a question and I tell them I don't know the answer and they won't accept it. So when Moses uses these words, why do you quarrel with me? Because he's been asked to provide water that 
Moses doesn't have in his rucksack waiting to share, I feel a sense of satisfaction of this is just part of working with a community of people, particularly a community of people who are trying to follow something that's not the leader, but is a God who's being interpreted to them by the leader. So you don't have to be in the wilderness, or are you always in the wilderness? <laughs> no, I'm not always in the wilderness. I'm not always in the wilderness, but I'm always seeking to pull people together in order to follow God together. And people sometimes confuse me for, I mean, I am, you know, goddess-like in so many ways, but my capacity to create resources out of nothing is not godlike. And I disappoint people when I'm not able to give them what they're asking for, even if what they're asking for is something I can't control. So so this, I mean, this episode, as you know, is one of a whole series of similar things that happen again and again in the wilderness. People complain. Moses is like, what, what do you want me to do for you? And sometimes Moses gets more or less annoyed. This one, somewhat less annoyed. It's like, you know, what do you want with me? And then, and God also somewhat less annoyed. It's like, all right, I'll give them, like, we'll figure out a way to do this. Sometimes the reaction is far stronger. Moses will say things like, like, why are you even talking to me, right? Your complaint has to do with the, like the boss, go complain to him, you know, understood, like sort of if you dare. And sometimes God's reaction is, who are these people who dare to challenge me. What's at the heart of it, though, in, in all of the cases, at least in, in, in so many of them, is, is something that is, is expressed explicitly here, which is, you know, I think we often look at the people grumbling, complaining, however you want to take that, and our reaction is, you know, what a bunch of ingrates, right? They just got, they, they just got taken out of Egypt, right? Because we know we know that they're going to be okay. We know that God is taking care of them. We know that they're supposed to simply believe and have faith and everything's going to be fine. And we read a little bit in, in light of Deuteronomy that says very explicitly, right, I put you in the wilderness and took away all your stuff just to test you. And, you know, you were so disobedient. And that, that sort of frames the whole experience. We read these stories and we get annoyed with the people. When the people at the end of this say, is God in our midst or not? We could read that in, again, is sort of, you know, how could they possibly doubt? But at the same time, I, I can understand that. They're in the middle of nowhere. They need something. Like, they actually need something. And the one person that is supposed to be in charge of them can't give it to them. Are we on our own here? When you see and you read those words in, the, in translation, is the Lord among us or not? What's the affectation behind those words in your imagination? Is it, are they genuinely curious or is it a rhetorical question? I think it's that they're, they're genuinely feel abandoned. Mm. They, I mean, they feel like they were sold a bill of goods. God's like, I'm going to take you out of Egypt to a land of milk and honey. It's going to be, it's going to be awesome. We're going to leave and, and I'm going to take you there. And the people get there and they don't realize how hard the road's going to be. And, you know, it's, I've gone on, I've taken my kids on road trips and forgotten to pack water or a drink. And they'll be like, I'm thirsty. And I'm like, I, I, sorry, I don't have, I don't have, like, you're going to have to suffer for a while. I promise I'll give you eventually. Like, we'll find a place to stop. Mm -hmm. But they have every right to be like, what are we, why did you take me here? Had you, had you no plan for this? 
<laughs> so I hear compassion in your, your in your interpretation, compassion for, of course, they're wondering if God is among them or not, because they associate God's presence with met promises that haven't been met yet. And it's hard for them to believe the if God is failing to deliver on this expectation, well, what about that expectation? What about the other expectation? And that I resonate there. And I also, when I come back to the grumbling, when I come back to the, why, why are you quarreling with me? I'm feeling such compassion for Moses sure, as well. And one of the um, concepts that comes to mind for me from my own area of ministerial leadership is a term that is being explored a lot by um, a guy named Alan Roxburgh and other people who are interested in missional perspectives on Christianity, uh, the concerns over ecclesiocentrism, the person who would rather let their whole faith die as long as their church is okay. And Roxburgh's critique of that ecclesiocentric Christianity is its functional atheism. It's divestiture of faith in something bigger than ourselves that we need the church kind of as, as it is right now to survive and thrive, because if it doesn't, then my faith will die. Well, is the Lord among us or not? I think that there's in taking is the Lord among us or not in anything that is productive or positive as, as, as we're sort of talking about it here, I think is actually, is, is probably a counter reading to the way that the Bible is the biblical authors, the biblical story is portraying it. I think for sure the people are supposed to be very much in the wrong here. They're supposed to just trust and they're supposed to have faith. And this is a thing that's established over and over again. And God will say things like, after everything I've done for them, how could they even doubt it? God will be like, fine, they want to they want to see him here. I'll show up and then I'm kicking them out. You know, they can take care of themselves. There's lots of, lots of evidence that this question, is the Lord among us or not, is meant to be damning of the people. Ingrates. Ingrates, but also not just ingrates in part, but also just faithless, right? They're supposed to simply believe that they'll be okay even when it seems not. And I will admit that I am, at least in this conversation, I'm considerably more sympathetic to them just out of pure common experience. They don't get to see the deity normally. They don't know. I mean, you said that if not this, maybe not the next thing, maybe not the next thing. How do they know? And you feel sympathy for Moses, and I get, and I and I get that because you like to take the mantle of Moses onto yourself. Oh yes, um, I, I definitely do. But correction, I feel sympathy for both parties, and I feel sympathy. I think the same way that you're alluding. In part, I feel sympathy because I have known what it's like to be deprived, and I know what it's like to deprive others. But also because when I'm honest, who do I really? relate to in this story, it's not Moses. It's Moses's followers. Why do you think I beat up on myself when somebody asks me to give them something I don't have? Because I feel guilty. I want to be able to give them what they need. Moses never really feels guilty about how bad, (laughs) he never does. He whines about how annoying they are and he gets angry at them. In in a sense, I don't know, maybe this is what you're talking about. Moses, tell me if I'm going too far. What if we read Moses as like, sort of the, has a little bit of true believer stuff going on here. Moses's perspective is, I have complete and total faith in God. 
And so you're suffering, but I know it's all going to be okay. So just suffer silently and know in the end that God will, will care for you. If a leader said that today, and I suppose there probably are some who do, I suspect that our reaction would be, that's not a particularly sympathetic, emotionally intelligent leader. Absolutely. You hear critique all the time of when the president says this is not something the executive branch can handle, he gets slammed for saying that because of the fact it's lacking in compassion to those who have even less power than he has. Yeah, I will admit, the more I think about it, the more I feel like, yes, it's very hard for Moses, but he never recognizes that it's much harder for them. And that would seem to be, again, this is your area, not mine. That would seem to be a trait that would be a useful one. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Professor Baden and Dean Drummond, for your insights on Exodus. Remember to rate and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening, and visit our website, YaleBibleStudy.org. Chapter, Verse, and Season is a production of the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. It's produced by creator and managing editor Joel Baden, production manager Kelly Morrissey, associate producer Aidan Stoddart, and I'm your host and executive producer, Helena Martin. Our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season. Season.